Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a horrifying thing to face a nameless and faceless and emotionless authority. An authority which has no relationship with you except to demand comply or be destroyed. You exist to serve the state. That's the kind of thing that people in North Korea, for instance, experience day by day as they, they live under that tyranny. Now, in a family, authority works totally differently. And a family authority is personal. It's in the context of love and relationships, interdependence, and mutual respect for one another's offices. And the, the church is the family of God. Just in chapter 3, we remember that the apostle told us that it's the household of God. And he's explaining to Timothy how to teach the elders and the, and the ministers and the deacons in his area how to conduct affairs in the household of God. And in chapter 3, he described the character of the office bearers. And they exercise their authority, showing, manifesting the character of God and his fatherly love. And so in chapter 4, Paul reminded Timothy again, as he keeps reminding him throughout this letter, you have to keep your focus on the gospel and on Christ because in as much as you do that, you will be able, together with your colleagues, to carry out your offices in a way which is for God's glory and for the salvation of the church. You will reflect the character of God. And so in, in chapter 5, we come to a chapter where Paul is describing some household rules for the family of God. What does the church look like? How do we treat each other when we reflect the very character of our Father? When we reflect the character of our Savior who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so the first thing we notice as we come to this chapter is that we treat one another with love and respect. Paul begins the chapter by saying, don't rebuke an older man. The word rebuke means to, to just pummel, to beat, whether physically or with words. Just give it to somebody. And Paul says that's not the way things are done in the church of Christ. You don't just come, no matter how right you are, and just tear into somebody for stepping out of line, especially when that person deserves your respect as someone older than you. You don't strike, you don't pummel, you don't tear into, but you exhort or encourage is the word in our translation. And the word behind that in the Greek is, is the word connected to the word paraclete, which is the word that Greek uses to describe the Holy Spirit, the comforter. So encourage, exhort, comfort, come alongside to edify, to, to build up with all respect. And so Timothy is being taught by Paul not just how he ought to uh, treat older people, older men, but he's, he's to pass this on to the people that he's training as well. And so an older man must be encouraged as you would a father, admonished, comforted, edified, built up as you would a father. Now, isn't that interesting, children? The Bible says that you can correct your father 
but there's a right way to do it. If your father says or does something which doesn't align with the word of God, you not only have the right, but you have the duty to tell him. But you tell him with respect because you're a child, you're a son, you're a daughter, with love. And you say, Dad, with all due respect, doesn't the Bible say this? And you encourage him to conform and to evaluate his words and his actions in the light of Holy Scripture. Every authority in our lives is under the supreme authority of God to whom we can always appeal, but we do it in the right way, with respect and with love. And it's the same for uh, brothers, it's the same for mothers and sisters. We are the family of God. We are the household of God. There is no room for, for arrogance. There is no room for saying, you stepped out of line, I'm going to get you. But there is love and respect and encouragement. So parents, as we bring up our children, part of the, the important work that we're doing is that we're training our sons and daughters how to be members of the church and how to be uh, citizens in, in society and how to deal with conflict and how to deal when, with people when they're doing something wrong and how to deal with that in a proper godly way with love and respect. So we treat one another with love and respect. And looking at verse 3 now to verse 16, we take care of each other. Because we are family, we care for one another. And Paul draws Timothy's attention to some of the most vulnerable people in the congregation, the widows who would be left with no income, with no protection from a husband. And if they had no children or other relatives, then they were really, really uh, in need of being cared for. They were vulnerable. And because we are the household of God, we reflect his character. Did we not just sing Psalm 146? The Lord he looks upon the poor, the afflicted, the widow, the orphan. And the words there in Psalm 146 in the, in the Hebrew are, are crafted in such a way by the Holy Spirit so as to not describe something that God does, but it describes something that God is. This is the way he is. He takes care of the widows and the orphans. We're going to sing that a little later in verses 4 and 5. And so in verse 9, Paul speaks about enlisting or enrolling widows. And we don't have time to go into all the details. It's fascinating to study this, this up, and there are lots of opinions about it. But just summarizing it, it seems that in the area of Ephesus and in that region, the church at that time, when a widow was older and, and had no other resources, the church would give them a, a, a constant stipend which they could live off until the Lord called them from this life into glory. But Paul says you, you can't just randomly sign up women for this stipend, for this, this ongoing care of the church. There have to be some criteria that you look at. And so in verse 3, they, they, need to be, they need to be honored. Honor widows who are truly widows. And the word honor in Greek has the idea of, of respecting, but also has the idea of remunerating. It can be both giving respect or giving a financial stipend, which, which is in response to the work that they're doing, or which is in response to the need that they have. So there's honor, but also financial care, all bound up in that word of honor in verse 3. But Paul says they've got to be truly widows if you're going to do that. Now, what is a true widow? Well, look at verse 5. She's left all alone. 
doesn't have children and grandchildren to take care of her and other relatives. She set her hope on God. She continues in prayers night and day. There it is again, the incessant prayer of God's people, something that we have to learn a lot more as modern-day Christians because we've really lost that, something we need to work on. She's continuing in prayer night and day. She's lived a godly life. She's a one man, woman, and this is interesting because it, the, the apostle takes the, the word uh, choices that he made for, for elders, that they have to be one woman, men, and he turns it around. So in other words, she can't be a woman that was flirting and carrying on with all kinds of, of men. She has to be a, a godly and holy woman. She has to be a woman whose life has shown good works. She has brought up children. She has shown hospitality. She has washed the feet of the saints. She is able to humble herself and, and give sacrificially to others. She's cared for the afflicted. She's devoted herself to every good work. So that's a true widow. Now, if there are widows that fulfill most of these criteria, but they have family that can care for them, then the family should take care of them first. That's showing godliness. Look at verse 4. If a widow has grandchildren or children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. And the word godliness there in verse 4 is a word for worship. Worship is more than just coming to church on Sundays and singing and praying. Worship is all of life in the presence of God before the face of God. And true religion, says the, the Apostle James in chapter 1 verse 27, is to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. It's more than just the Sunday church service. It's the way of life. And godliness, true worship of God, means that we take care of those whom God has entrusted into our care. And that's important. There's a diaconal principle here that the deacons follow. When somebody is in need, one of the first questions that the deacons will evaluate is, does the immediate family have the possibility and the resources to meet that need. And there are some times when that's encouraged to happen before we make use of the resources of the congregation. This is true worship. We take care of our family. And that's important because we live in a society in which we're all sliced and diced and atomized into individual little numbered citizens. We even have our numbers, each one of us. And all of us are supposedly dependent totally on the state for our health care, for our retirement funds, for this and for that. If we have any need, we're instructed and we're encouraged and we're trained to go to government as God. The Bible teaches something very different. We go first to those nearest to us. That's the way things work in the way that God wants us to live. And so, look at verse 8. This is so important. That Paul says, listen, if you don't do this, if you don't take care of those closest to you, if you don't provide for those in need that are, that are near to you, your, your own blood relatives or relatives by marriage, that is a denial of the faith. So it's the opposite there of verse 4. Instead of being godliness and true worship, it's denying the faith. It's like apostasy. It's like, it's like being worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers still have some of that light of nature left over from the fall where they understand that you're supposed to take care of your relatives. And so there are true widows, but those who have family that can take care of them should do that. 
and verse 16 again, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widowed. So that leaves the ones that have no other resources, no other help. They are to be helped by the church. But then there are other widows who are not truly widows. And, and Paul speaks about them in, in verse 6. A woman who, instead of giving her life over to, to God and to prayer and to, to holiness, she is self-indulgent. She's like, well, my husband's passed away, and, and I'm just going to enjoy life and live for myself. And Paul says, well, then you're dead already. You're deader than your husband is because you're giving yourself over to a life which is no life at all. And then in verse 11, he speaks about the younger widows who run a great danger of falling into this sin. He talks about them being drawn away from Christ by their passions. They desire to marry and incur condemnation for having abandoned the faith. Now, this is strange because just a few verses ago in, in chapter 4 or chapter 5, Paul speaks about the heresy that was going on in Ephesus, where, which, amongst other things, forbade marriage. And now it seems that Paul has a problem with these women marrying. Why would that be? But then if we read a little further, he says, verse 14, I would have the younger widows marry. So if he wants them to marry, why is he thinking that it's a bad thing for them to marry? Does that make sense? Well, of course it makes sense. This is the word of God. So look at what, it, what he says in verse 11. They... they their passions draw them away from Christ. They abandon their former faith and desire to marry. These are young women. And Paul says, listen, if you put them on the list and you give them a stipend from the church so they can live off that stipend, they don't need to seek a husband. Then they're going to live a frivolous life. They're young. They've got full, they're full of energy. They're women that can still have children and manage households and be married. But what's going to happen? They're going to be part of this Ephesian heresy. They're going to be going from house to house and spreading things which are not the gospel and get caught up in the pleasures of this world to the point where they meet some guy who's not a Christian and they want to marry him. That's what's happening. And Paul says the church isn't going to bankroll that kind of activity. That's not a, a good use of the holy resources of, of the Christian church. It's not healthy for these young women to be given a stipend like that, to be supported by the church, to live a frivolous and godless life. Let them marry, verse 14, bear children, manage their households, because that is the office of a woman. That's what the Bible says. It sounds kind of weird to say that in the year 2021, doesn't it? It's almost like, can we really say this? So the Bible says that is the office of a woman. That's the, there are exceptions. Sometimes God does not give a husband to a woman. Sometimes God does not give children to a married woman. And then he gives them a special calling in his kingdom. And then they need to figure out what that is and say, Lord, help me. Help me to, to, to be a woman in your service in the situation you've given me. But the general rule is this, verse 14. Marry, bear children, and manage their households. Give the adversary or the adversary no occasion or slander. A woman, a daughter of God, is to embrace who she is. She is to embrace her office. She is built to be a life giver, to be a life nurturer. 
And when people refuse to embrace their created office, and when they give themselves over to their passions and to a life of uh, superficiality and frivolity, look at verse 15, they've strayed after Satan. That's not what? That's not the life that God calls us to live. That's going back into the darkness. That's going back to the world. And so this is, these are the household rules. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. It seems a little bit jumbly if you just read through it very quickly. But Paul is describing what the family of God looks like. We treat one another with love and respect. We take care of one another, but we do that in a way which is helpful and not in a way which hurts. And if we continue in verse 17 now, we hold leadership to high standards, that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So respect, but also financial support when and if that is appropriate. And here we see, right here in verse 17, we see in the beginning of the New Testament church, the beginning of the distinction between the elders who supervise and, and govern, the bishops, and the elders who are dedicated to preaching and teaching. You see the difference between what we call today elders and ministers coming out right here in the biblical text. Ministers and elders are, and, and our Presbyterian brothers and sisters describe it that way, they describe the, the, the minister as a preaching elder or a teaching elder and the other elders as ruling elders. And in the Reformed world, we tend to describe it a little bit differently, but it's the same thing. The preacher's office comes out of the elder's office, and it's a special instantiation of the elder's office. And you can see that developing already in New Testament times. You see that in Revelation, for instance, when the Lord writes letters to the different churches, and he addresses the letters, interestingly enough, not to the elders and deacons, but he addresses the letters to the angel of the church at, the angel. The word angel means messenger. It's a reference to the local pastor. And the Lord Jesus is addressing the pastor specifically as the ones that bring the word in those churches. So they are to be given due respect and financial support to be able to do their, their work. Why? Well, Paul gives some examples of scriptural principles backing this up in verse 18. He says that the scriptural principle is this. You earn or you live off the work that you do. The ox is treading out the grain. He is fed by that same grain. The laborer works all day and deserves his wages. In another place, the, the apostle says, the priests, those who serve at the altar, eat from the altar. You get your living off the work to which you are called and dedicated. That's no different for those who are called to be dedicated to the preaching of the word. And so, double honor. Why? Well, because they're ambassadors of Christ. Not because they're so important, they're really not. But he is, and they come in his name. And so when we honor the elders and the office bearers, we honor them not because of them. We honor them because of whose name they come in. And so that holds them to a very high standard. And look at verse, 20, verse 19. That means that we don't just randomly and easily accuse the representatives of Christ in the church. We don't trash their reputation because somebody said something. I think elder so-and-so said or did this. And then, boom, it goes to the whole congregation 
through social media or through conversations. That's not the way things work. We don't, we don't do that to anyone, especially not to the ambassadors of Christ. We need due process. If somebody has done something, said something wrong, needs to be corrected, there need to be two or three witnesses. That's a biblical principle. But it goes the other way as well. If there is sin, the office bearers also continue to be held to a higher standard. Those who persist in sin need to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the church of Christ, no one is too important to fall. No one is too important to fail. In the church of Christ, we never Sweep sin under the carpet. We deal with it. doesn't matter who it is. It can be any office bearer. It can be the pastor in the pulpit. If there is sin, we deal with it. And that's the problem in the history of the church that often we've made this mistake that we think, well, if this and this office bearer's sin comes out publicly, then the community will be thinking, wow, what kind of people are they? And it will bring shame on the gospel and the name of the Lord, so let's cover it up. And very, very sincere motives, we want to protect the name of the Lord. But instead, what we do is we protect sinners and offenders. That is not the way of Christ. Paul says it very clearly. You don't admit a charge easily, you make sure that it's well set out and that proper procedure is followed so that there's justice. But when there is sin, you deal with it. And you deal with it publicly. You deal with it in the presence of all if people refuse to repent so that the rest may stand in fear. The church, in every aspect of its, uh, the way it's ordered, needs to make clear that sin has no place amongst us. We hate it. We seek it out. We destroy it, we deal with it, and we minister the grace of Christ to those who repent. Now, Paul says, listen, this is important to me. Look at verse 21. I'm telling you this, not just offhand. Look at verse 21. I'm telling you this in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I'm telling you this as calling heaven as my witness. You have to do this, Timothy. You Keep these rules. I'm charging you without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So, Timothy, if you have this buddy elder in the one church that you're uh, supporting, and he's such a wonderful guy, and you love him, and he's a great friend, he's done so much work for the Lord, and he's so important to that congregation, and, and the projects that he's involved in are just working so well. And then he's caught in sin, and he's kind of reluctant to repent. Timothy, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the temptation to cover it up to just kind of paper over it because uh, for, the, for the work of the kingdom, let's, let's pretend this sin uh, is, is, is not there. No, no partiality. Doesn't matter who it is. Sin must be called out. It must be repented of. If it's not repented of, it must be censured. And so that, that starts already before ordination. Don't be hasty, he says, to, to lay on hands. Because we have to understand, says Paul, that the sins of some people are conspicuous, verse 24, but the sins of others appear later. So we need to know people before we put them in positions of authority and responsibility in the church. Because what they do or don't do 
affects the congregation and the, the, the glory of God's name in the community. So take time to get to know the people you're ordaining. Don't impose a bad egg on the congregation. Don't cover it up when leaders sin against God and the people. But then verse 23, and what's 23 doing there? It looks like it's in brackets in some of our Bibles. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why does he suddenly say that? Well, Paul's saying, just in the end of verse 22, keep yourself pure. Don't get involved with with, uh, too easily putting people into positions of authority and responsibility if you don't know their character if they don't show the the qualifications that I just laid out in chapter 3. And one of those qualifications is what? That they ought not to be a drunkard, right? In chapter 3. A leader in the church ought not to be someone who is addicted to substances which make him lose his sobriety so he can't think, so he can't discern, so he can't figure out the difference between good and evil. Because that's what losing sobriety takes away from us. And it seems that Timothy is a very, very modest young man. He's a very moderate young man. And it seems that Timothy said, you know what, I'm going to stay away from wine altogether. So I don't even get near to this sin. And Paul says, yeah, that's good, Timothy. You're keeping yourself pure. You're, not, you're, not, um, you're, you're making sure you stay far away from the sins that are listed, which, which disqualify for office. But you have to understand, Timothy, that in the context in which we live, in the age in which we live, water, and to some extent even even milk, can carry a lot of bacteria and pathogens and parasites, and you can get sick from it. And wine is a lot safer to drink. And so don't get carried away with the purity thing, Timothy. The scripture actually says in one place, be not righteous overmuch. You can be too righteous too sometimes. And so Paul says, keep yourself pure, but you've got to start drinking a little bit of wine. It's a lot healthier for you. You're often sick. This will be good for you. So don't take it to a ridiculous extreme. And so here we have the household rules, chapter 5, 1 Timothy, chapter 5. They teach us that in the, the family of God, we treat one another with love and respect because we reflect the very character of our Father. We take care of one another in a, in a way which brings glory to God, not in a way which wastes resources, not in a way which encourages people in a life of sin, but we take care of one another in a godly way, in a way which builds up and blesses. And we hold our leadership to high standards. Those are the three main takeaways of this chapter. Now today... We're about to sit down at the family meal. And this meal says to us that all is well between us and our Father. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Everything's okay. He's not angry with us. There are no sins between us and him. It's all dealt with. We're loved. We're holy. We're pure. We're righteous. We're acceptable. We are the family of God. We are the household of God, and Father calls us to the table. He feeds us, he nourishes us, he sustains us with his love and his grace and his spirit. And these household rules in 1 Timothy chapter 5 just remind us who we are. We are 
the family of God. We are God's children. And when it comes to God's children, I don't know if it's a saying in English, I know it's a saying in Dutch, the apple does not fall far from the tree. It should be obvious to people who your father is, who our father is. When they see us as individuals, when they see us as families, when they see us as a gathered congregation, it should be obvious. This is the family of God. They treat one another with love and respect. They take care of one another, and they hold their leadership to very high standards of holiness and faithfulness. The preaching and the sacraments and the prayers of God's people are the massive pipelines which he uses to pour into our lives the grace and the glory of being remade after his image. We don't look like God's children because we try really hard to be good. We don't look like God's family because we really, really work hard at it and put a lot of effort into it, a lot of energy, a lot of thought. We look like God's children because God pours his love and his grace and his Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our lives, and it just overflows from us. And it affects everyone around us. And those massive pipelines that, he's, that he uses to, to pour these things into our lives, into our hearts, are the preaching and the sacraments, the, 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 the means of grace, together with prayer. And when those are living and active and holy and used in our midst, then it flows, doesn't it? The love, the justice, and the holiness, the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness of the Father pours into us, and it changes the way we live, the way we act, the way we think. And this brings glory to God. So brother and sister, come to the table and be filled. Amen.